This week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Zach. And this is Matt. And we are celebrating Halloween with a mm-hmm. double feature this week. We're going to be talking about two parody favorites of ours, Dracula Dead and Loving It and Young Frankenstein, both Mel Brooks films and, of course, based off of their Universal Pictures counterparts. This was my first time seeing Dracula Dead and Loving It and uh, Matt's first time seeing Young Frankenstein. We got to share. We got to share our culture. Yes. First time seeing it all the way through. First time seeing all the way through because the situation with Young Frankenstein is it's one of those things where unless I had a videotape or a VHS of it growing up, I just didn't see it. And because this wasn't one that my parents were particularly drawn to, I didn't have access to it and we didn't really have cable or syndicated television. This being one of the only movies that could show up on television of the Mel Brooks canon. But because it was one of those movies that was not often played and because I wasn't able to purchase it in some ways, I didn't really see it until college. And even then, it was kind of only in half watches and hearings from other people about what it was. So I had seen clips of it. I knew a lot of the content, but I had never actually sat down and watched the movie. As opposed to Dracula Dead and Loving It, which I have a copy of and I've had a copy of for a long time and absolutely adore. Young Frankenstein, I think I saw for the first time like two years ago. I don't think I'd seen a single Mel Brooks film until I went to college. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) whatever happens whenever we have these like cultural moments where people are like oh you ever seen this movie it's like no some people have different life experiences some people have never seen star wars if star wars didn't come across your purview as a child if you didn't have direct access to it some people didn't go to the theaters because they couldn't afford theater some people didn't buy movies so it's reasonable for people to have not seen movies and i think that the mel brooks movies are not so special that it is a must have requirement for people to have seen them are they good I think so, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to have seen the movie. And I think that parody movies, you know, Dracula Dead and Loving It and Young Frankenstein being parody movies, first of all, they're a part of the comedy genre. As legendary as Mel Brooks is, parody has a particular niche that I don't think gets fully represented uh, mm-hmm. when we think about comedy films, because we usually think about the buddy comedy film, right? We have a straight man and a slapstick man. Or we have something that's a little bit more objective in its comedic portrayals. Whereas Mel Brooks was not that often in the movies. Rather, he was functioning as a writer for the movie. And while that carried a lot of weight, I don't think that it carried that weight so far as to push these two movies into the cultural limelight. Yes, of course they come around at like Halloween because all of the Universal Monster movies come back at Halloween. So in being a part of the horror genre and the comedy genre, I think that these two, in particular, get a little bit lost. I will say my only reference to Dracula the Dead and Loving It is you talking about it. I've never heard anyone else talk about this movie. Young Frankenstein, on the other hand, though, like I've heard people talk about, but not other horror movies that come around Halloween. Like, it, it's usually like people just say, yeah, Young Frankenstein, like, watch that around Halloween or whatever. 
So you're absolutely right, but it's like also I do think that there is this niche element to the parody subgenre of comedy as well. Even like other Mel Brooks films like Robin Hood Men in Tights. Yeah, sure, I'd heard of that when I was younger, but you saw them out of convenience, right? It was on TV, you're flipping through like, oh, what's this? Robin Hood Men in Tights. Like, I know it's always something that you know the story of, right? We all know Frankenstein, we all know Dracula, we know Robin Hood. There is that like relation to it, but then it's building upon that and in a really branded kind of way. Yeah, absolutely. I think that especially with the works of Mel Brooks, I think that people go to the producers, like first and foremost, as the media artifact that people remember. And even then, that is a particularly niche subgenre of people being music theater nerds who think that <laughs> singing about Hitler in springtime is funny. Right? Because it's right on the edge. It's right on the edge of acceptability. And that's kind of the whole arc with Mel Brooks's movies is that there's right on the edge of acceptability. Blazing Saddles, Blazing which Saddles. was co-written by Richard Pryor. So, right, it has a lot to say about its kind of place in history, but that was also an original story. That kind of comedy writing is distilled down through the lens of contemporary media, but Robin Hood wasn't contemporary. Dracula, not contemporary. Frankenstein? I mean, I don't know if Blazing Saddles can be called contemporary. Like, even though it's an original story, it's definitely, like, just parodying all, like, the Spaghetti Westerns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All the tropes and cliches that come along with that genre. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's like also to say like in Young Frankenstein, there are shots that are like straight out of Dracula that are in that movie, which is like this kind of funny self-aware kind of thing where it's also referencing the genre as a whole. And to actually dig into the movies here, like a really funny moment in Young Frankenstein when they say Frau Blucher and the horses freak out every time. And the common interpretation is that is Blucher is like the German word for glue. Well, that's just not right. That's... Oh, <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> no, it's it's not. It's it's not. It's just what people think and like to justify the joke. It's just making fun of the, oh, I am, you know, says name. And then like something dramatic happens, like lightning strikes, horses freak out. Mm -hmm. And it's just making fun of that, that horror trope of this dramatic entrance of someone and and then like actually repeating it to the the point of just ridiculousness yeah and that's a core part of mel brooks's comedy just exactly. repeat a thing and repeat it until it is beaten into the ground because the same thing happens in dracula dead and loving it when you have the romani woman back in like the the village and she's she's <laughs> grabbed a hold of her neck skin and she's just going yeah Ugh. And she continues to do it as she walks off screen. And that kills me. Those moments are like, there is this arc to the, the comedy of it, right? At first it's like, that's just kind of weird, right? It's just, it gets it like a little chuckle out of you. And then after a little bit, you're like, okay, is this joke over yet? And then it becomes funny again. And even funnier than like it actually started. And it's just this weird kind of pull that it has. And I think it is only certain people can pull it off, I think. And it has to be like done in a in a somewhat clever way yeah and i don't know if mel brooks is the most clever but i really like <laughs> and appreciate it i think that part of the reason that uh, young frankenstein especially gets a little bit more heat than dracula dead and loving it is because you have dracula dead and loving it being front lighted by leslie nielsen i love leslie nielsen i think that he's a hilarious comedy actor i think that he's just got the perfect persona for it 
That said, he is more known for kind of his his B movie presence and his uh, his kind of occult fandom, right? Mm-hmm. People really like his cult status, especially with Airplane, which is a shot for shot remake of another movie too, right? He showed up in The Naked Gun. He, he's a great actor. I don't think that he had the same degree of presence and pull at the time that Gene Wilder did. Oh, I think that Gene not. Wilder just has a bigger stage presence and a bigger place in sort of cultural memory, which helps to drag young Frankenstein forward a little bit. In terms of actor quality, I think that they both have their their own distinct styles. Leslie Nielsen plays a little bit deeper into the comedy, whereas the thing that is so successful about Gene Wilder's portrayals in every movie is that he lives in that character, and every single thing that that character does is so serious. Oh, yeah, for sure. Obviously, we can't talk about Gene Wilder and not mention Willy Wonka, right? Yeah. He is playing this ridiculous clown of a character. Like, he's a candy factory <laughs> owner with Oompa Loompas and, and whatnot. But it is taken very seriously, and, and you very much believe what he believes yeah. of himself. In Young Frankenstein, it's so funny to me how we go from him really hate, hating the Frankenstein name and, like, not owning it at all, and even just he's Frankenstein, and he's removed himself from his family legacy. And to the point where literally the one thing he does that turns him <laughs> is he reads through his grandfather's process in the cleverly titled book, How I Did It, um, which I think is hilarious. A reference to O.J. Simpson. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, okay. This <laughs> is <laughs> just way just before sure. that. Was it? <laughs> Maybe not. It was definitely before uh, the the book came out, but... Do you think that OJ did it? Yes. That's inflammatory. It's it, it's common knowledge. You're going to get a suit. He did Have write a seen? book that was not how I did it, but how I would have did it. Which is, how I would have did it. I think is Did is you bad. see the glove thing? You saw the glove thing, right? The, yeah, like, the if if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. Jim. Jim. Jim, Jim Wilder. Gene, Gene Wilder is still alive, right? No. No? No. He shouldn't be. He should. <laughs> if he is, he's in agony. He's not. He wouldn't be that old, right? I gotta like look this he up. He died now, in 2016. Like, oh, that's unfortunate. I I think he is. He's great. Do you think that great people don't deserve to die? No, but it makes me sad when they do. Aren't you ecstatic for their passage into the afterlife? Their opportunity to extend their greatness into the universal beyond where are you going with this i thought this was gonna like turn into you know how both films deal with the theme of defying death yes in very different ways that was the goal it was a pivot into mel brooks's approach to christianity you cannot ignore the way in which he skirts around christianity in both of these movies and the use of the cross being that mel brooks is maybe the most famous jewish comedian that's ever lived <laughs> he's up there that's for sure that comes into play when you start to look at the sort of religiosity about this because it's interesting to me that in dracula dead and loving it the crucifix thing is kind of not played as a joke and it really could have been and it probably should have been 
I think that that was a missed opportunity. The vampires being like afraid of the cross. Yeah, I think that that is the the most unmined source of comedy in all of vampire lordom because it's so goofy. It implies like this credence to the Christian faith, right? And, right, and is it the cross or is it the crucifix? This is just if, the if shape. Yeah, is it the, if it's the shape of the cross, it's, you hold up to any two sticks, and like sometimes that works in these movies, and sometimes oh, it yeah. needs to be a true to life crucifix, and you got and you gotta wonder, it's like, are they upset about the shape, or are they upset about some twink got nailed to a piece of wood? It's like, what is going on here? You know, I just watched Let Me In, the American adaptation of Let the Right One In, which is the yes. Swedish vampire movie. Yes, based off a novel, which I now want to read. It was funny because there's this scene where she comes in and he's like, well, what if I don't invite you in? And she's like, okay. And she just like comes in and it's like fine for a little bit. And then she like starts bleeding profusely from her head. He's like, all right, all right, I invite you in or whatever. And at first, like when she wasn't reacting, I was like, oh, are vampires just like really polite? (laughs) Like there is so much of this like lore that what vampires can and can't do. It's actually like quite interesting how much ability and inability surrounds the vampiric. Do you know what a vampire's figure? least favorite restaurant is? Um, Olive Garden. Outback. Oh. Steakhouse. Get Steakhouse. It? Yeah, yeah, no, I get... <laughs> it's the house of steaks. They're just really afraid of punji pits. It is kind of weird that they didn't make any jokes with the cross because like every other thing is a joke there's so much there's the garlic there's and and actually what's funny is that i think dracula dead and loving it actually gets more right than the original dracula movie you said that yeah i stand by it they talk about wolfsbane the whole time in this film it's garlic and there's just a ridiculous amount of garlic everywhere. And there's the whole scene, like the dance scene with mirrors. One of my That's favorite really scenes. Funny. That was where I learned about the Chardash. This movie was one of the movies that inspired me to become a musician. Really? That's not even a joke. I had the Chardash from this running through my brain constantly. Oh. And then they have the dance scene because there's two really great dance scenes in this movie. The one where they're actually at the midnight ball, but then there's also the one where they're back at his castle and there's the candles everywhere. Well, it's weird because they happen like back to back. They happen like <laughs> back to back, but weirdly, I think it's the it's the best visualization of eroticism in a Dracula movie, in my opinion. It's it's pretty steamy. Yeah, it's it's pretty honest. steamy, and also it's with Leslie Nielsen, and you're just like, wow, well. this is like they really get into it. <laughs> And they show they show something that I don't think a lot, which is like the the duality of the nature of Dracula, because they have Dracula the Refined, who is played by like Net- Leslie Nielsen's character, but then we also get like a glimpse into the unrefined and the more animalistic version of Dracula, which is done through his shadow. Like yeah. the use of his shadow as this secondary iteration of Dracula is such a cool concept and it is such an effective way of showing us the difference between dracula's like self-restraint and sort of the animalistic nature within him because he immediately wants to hunt renfield at the beginning like the the shadow crawling down the stairs to get renfield and then you know dracula recalls it that's restraint that's vampiric restraint which is a subject that gets shown in a lot of these vampire movies, right? We have it in True Blood. We have it in Blade. There is at least some degree of restraint 
But in adaptations of specifically Dracula, we never get to see such a pure visual of the two sides of Dracula, the man, the the monster. Like, that's what's interesting about vampires, right? Is there is this animalistic, like, kind of savage side to them, but then there's this other side, is how they're kind of thought to be better than humans. They're suave and they're sexy. Yeah, it's like a superior race. And that's what a lot of the times they talk about, and like, oh, you know, they're gonna take over the world, or whatever, and... That's always their mission, is, is dominance, is world domination. Yeah, it's just like, <laughs> the world isn't so special that you need world domination. Also, you're literally allergic to the earth 50% of the day. And then there's always like kind of like that philosophical quandary that comes with it too is oh we got to keep the humans as livestock. At some point are they really any better than us? Are they any more evolved? You know, they have all these weaknesses too like silver and crosses and but with great power comes great responsibility. Um I mean, why are you quoting uh, Uncle Ben? Because vampires get an abnormal amount of supernatural powers, but also they have to be more responsible. They can't handle silver. They gotta wear sunscreen. Yeah, so... and They have a dietary restriction, Zach. (laughs) They have a very strict dietary restriction. I feel for them. Oh man, a garlic burrito? Destroyed. Because that's a thing that people (laughs) Sorry, I was thinking of a pizza slice. There's a scene in Monster Squad where Dracula has grabbed one of the children, and to get him off, one unwraps an old slice of pizza that he had wrapped in tinfoil and shoves it into Dracula's face, and it, like, leaves a huge burn. And, well, that's the thing, too, right? Is that vampires are, like, shown to have all these weaknesses, and Mm -hmm. they're still technically better than humans, right? Like, you can stab them, and as long as it's not with a wooden stake, they're fine. You can shoot them with a gun as long as it's not with a silver bullet they're fine you can stab or shoot a person and they can be fine yeah but (laughs) with it depends where with more restriction (laughs) (laughs) yeah i suppose the human body is like oh no a hole and like yeah pound pound for pound vampires can take a little bit more yeah that's what i'm saying is like they're they're shown to have all these weaknesses and it's just like yeah but like we're we're still worse, you know? Like, mm-hmm. we can get hit by a car and, you know, we're dead. We're just, like, crushed. You know, you have, you have to do a lot of stuff to a, a vampire to, to get them dead. Yeah. What do you think the parts per square inch is that garlic will start to affect them? Yeah, so, like, how much garlic will be lethal? Lethal? Yeah, then? because, like, if I ate just a raw bulb of iron, it would probably <laughs> kill me. Iron. So it's Probably. like, we, we we expect the same of vampires, but, you know, can they have, like, a dietary necessity of garlic? I never got the impression that they were like, garlic could kill them. Mm. I think it was, I think it's just like a deterrent. Do we ever get anything in media where a vampire ingests garlic and dies? Like, I don't well, think so. I think it's more a protection thing. In Monster Squad, he gets, like, legit burnt up. It's as if he got touched by the sun which i think is a strange use of garlic but i love that scene and it's so funny yeah because in dracula like in the the novel dracula is these garlic it wasn't even like the garlic garlands uh cloves it was yeah it was the garlands and the leaves or you know the the wreaths as they Mm -hmm. use them there's some interpretations that are just like garlic is a anticoagulant so the properties and effects that it has on blood is i don't know there are people that say shit. There's an anticoagulant. It's like, if you eat too much of it, do you just, like, is it just a blood thinner? Yeah, all but all things are blood thinners because it, you, it just is. Aspirin. 
aspirin. Do you think so, the vampires can take aspirin? <laughs> right, you just like throw some ibuprofen at them. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> Dracula's having a heart attack, and you have to watch by doing nothing. <laughs> Do vampires have hearts? That's a. Oh, they must. Yeah, they, they, they have, have the stakes. They still have the blood. They still bleed. So sometimes they don't, though. Sometimes it's like, oh, that's why they drink the blood. And they're like yeah. super, that's why they burn so easily, right? Because they're super dry because they don't have blood. And sometimes it's like goopy and black, so which is like necrotic yeah. blood. Right. Yeah, and they have because to have fresh dead. blood to keep things pumping. The working anatomy of a vampire is mysterious. Yeah, known only to the authors on AO3. Do you think vampires, cut this, do you think vampires produce semen? They have to, right? I don't know. I mean, it depends on who you ask, right? If you ask, what's her face? AO3. Well, AO3, of course, yes. But who's the lady who wrote Twilight? S- Stephanie Meiger. Yeah, her. I mean, like, isn't there like a whole vampire like impregnation? Yeah. If you ask her, yes. If you ask, I don't know, Bram Stoker, yes. Right, because there's the nature of procreation in all vampire stories. The very act of someone becoming a vampire is procreative. It is sexual yeah. and it is generative. That's what my, my hope would be, no, that they don't produce semen. That that would be like, they only create through Do you think, killing. Okay, 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 hold up, secondary. Do you think, okay, so you know how women- We're gonna have to keep this in, because it's actually interesting. Yeah, do you- <laughs> You know how women lose their eggs over time? They start out with a finite number of eggs. So do you think a a woman that is 23 that becomes a vampire could still within that time conceive a child using human DNA? That's an interesting question. Right? They still have technically the physiology. I would say yes. Sure. That could be an interesting story. That one's got to get explored. We've seen the aftermath, right? We saw, we've seen Blade, which is kind of the. It's, it's just that the dude is always the vampire. And the I'm kind dude of sick is always of it, the quite vampire. honestly. Yeah. Well, and they make Blade's mother a vampire. What's with, uh, yeah, so, yeah, Blade. Well, yeah, but she's like, she's like a vampire the whole time. And then, like, with Castlevania, I'm talking about the Netflix series, but also, also the video games, right? You have Alucard, whose name is so brilliantly Dracula backwards. Yep. And his mom is human. And then, of course, his dad is Dracula. It does work. So then thinking about this, right? So we have Dracula conceiving a child. The child comes out vampire. Why does it grow, and by it I mean he, Alucard, grow to a particular age and then stop? Because that's where the line about the procreation of vampires starts to get fuzzy for me, is simultaneously we have to believe that they no longer age, like the Cullen family, but also that they're capable of conceiving vampire children who conspicuously age, even though they technically shouldn't age by the rules of vampire law or vampire physiology. Because then that suggests that at some point in the development process, they just lose the the aging component. They they get to like 18 and then they're like, whoop, I no longer age. I stay within this physiology forever now. I So I don't think it... And I can't, I, I just brought up let me in or let the right one in. And it's like the whole thing is, it's like a 12 year old vampire girl. Like she turned into a vampire at 12 years old and she never aged beyond that. Let's mm-hmm. ignore that because I think that's a bit of an outlier. I don't think it's an aging thing. I think it's just like an Im- immortality thing. They don't appear to grow old. Is immortality never dying or is it never aging? But I think it's more like their bodies never start going through like entropy, right? That's so like, the ba- word I wanted you to say. Entropy? Yes. 
that's weird that is that like the daily double yes <laughs> i've said entropy and there's flashing lights going off i wanted you to say entropy <laughs> so that we could understand that there is a natural design at work in the vampire universe matter is never lost or destroyed it is only changed it's unnatural though because they don't go through that but that's you have kind to of the say whole point. We, but we are putting that They're in the unnatural. lens of of humanity Right. For them, I think that, you know, it and is, everything else, it is natural physiology of vampire. No, lobsters would not die if they were not crushed under the weight of their own shells. I need empirical evidence. That's a tr- you can look that up. Vampires and lobsters. Well, lo- lobsters are a crime against nature, then. <laughs> lobsters won't die. It's that their shells become so heavy that that whatever that scientific law is about body size in the exoskeleton eventually haunts them and, and is what causes them to be killed they are killed by their own physiology not because of their age so vampires and lobsters neither experience entropy or a gradual breakdown of cellular structure which is what one may call aging. So it's really an appearance thing. My my theory is that vampires, they will grow to an age, you always see them at their prime. They're not going to start aging, as we would say, or breaking down. Like, you don't see too many vampires that are like, they look like they're 80 years old. Okay, so pick it up what you're putting down. Functionally, we could also say that all vampires get to age 33, and then they can no longer die and that's more religious symbol, like symbolism, because Judas also died around the same time that Jesus did by killing by killing himself. And part of the reason, part of the background of whole vampires is, um, you know, they're they're the sons of Judas. They are uh, cursed by silver because of the money that yada yada Judas took from the guards to sell out Jesus. And so they died at the same time. And then Judas in some iterations is said to be the actual first vampire who began his life after death when Jesus died on the cross. And that's why he doesn't age. It's because Jesus died at 33. So vampires don't move past 33, but they live forever in a walking state of torment. You know, I think is really funny. What? When he eats the bugs. <laughs> when he when he eat the bug. <laughs> they cast Runfield really well. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, they, yeah. I was like, I started thinking about the movies again. <laughs> they do. Like, he does. Like, he Jesus. has such a great and distinct voice for that character too. They do a really good job of differentiating the voices because they have Renfield be insect like. He does the, which is very you know, it's a fly. He's making yeah. fly noises. And I think the the spiral staircase, like where he pushes him off, I think yeah. is also really funny. And it's just like it's just it's just stupid shit like that. It's yeah. like in many ways, Dracula Dead loving it is incredibly intelligent. It has a lot of wit. It has a lot of humor in its interpretation. But then also, Mel Brooks is not afraid to just be like, "What if we have a blood fount?" Right. So much of it is really lowbrow. I think it's done like in a really special way, though. It's just like all atmospheric, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's it's like a whole lot of lowbrow things that make you question the original source. You're like, why? Why is the Dracula tale like this? this- like, wouldn't it be kind of funny to, like, see Renfield, like, sneaking bugs and he's, like, acting like he doesn't? Because, like, at some at some point, right, it was, like, someone saw him eating bugs and they're, and they're like, hey, did you see the bug? And, like, he probably had to be like, no. Yeah, he needs a hit and he smokes a millipede. <laughs> that is the grossest thing you've ever said. <laughs> and the, the fact that this, like, we're talking about the characters, it's just... 
the fact that this film like makes Jonathan Harker an actual character mm-hmm. that has like an iota of growth <laughs> again yeah. puts this above the 1931 movie for me but he has also like a personality like obviously it it, it pokes fun at the British and like in fact one of the one of the things that oh, I God, think so connects funny. both with like Bram Stoker's closetedness and also like the inherent sexuality he's with his fiance and she says touch these and then you know puts her hand in it and he says like we can't we're British <laughs> and it's like you know it's like okay the sexually repressed British person which is such a clever like slap in the face to all of like British puritanical thinking but also the fact that Bram Stoker was a was a closeted gay man who had to repress his sexuality, but only bring it up to Walt Whitman and Oscar Wilde. Historically, his people who most likely he was lovers with. You know, I think that might also be a reference to both Jonathan Harker and Mina, their actors, being American in the 1931 film. Yeah. And, like, not even trying to cover that up. <laughs> yeah. And Jonathan Harker just has an American accent. And there's, like, no real explanation. So that that could be also a reference to that, which I think is, is it's funny. Deliciously it is. Silly. It's deliciously These both kind of take a departure. But I think Young Frankenstein takes a, a much larger departure from its origins. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, like, it is Young Frankenstein. We're not, like, it's just a literal recreating sequel. the... Yeah, it's, like... He's Victor Frankenstein's grandson. The events of the Frankenstein novel slash film have happened. And, like, we're now kind of recreating that in a way, but also, like, in, you know, in, in its own unique way. What, what are you laughing at? I just thought about if Young Frankenstein, like, was a musical written by Lin-Manuel Miranda. And just, like, putting on the Reds is, is in there. Yeah. But it's hip-hop dance now. And the fact that you can just see, what's his name, Peter Boyle? You can just see he's wearing platforms, because, like, he's not a big guy. He's no. he's actually a, a fairly tiny actor. He was in um, Everybody Loves Raymond. He was, among other things. Um, and I, I think he's just a, a great actor, but <laughs> despite his lack of coherent lines in this film, it's just so funny how you can see him in these, like, six-inch platforms and they just don't hide it at all. Which were also all the rage in the in that time period. Those were shoes that people would wear to the disco, the Gardnerville disco. You know what? What year do you think this takes place in? <laughs> the 1760s. It was the Age of Enlightenment. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was the Age of Enlightenment. We were still dealing with the aftermath of, of the Revolutionary War. Yeah, it's kind of strange that they picked that out to be like such an early horror film. I guess it, it's just one of those things, like, even before it was a movie, like, it just permeated, like, that story permeated the, the horror lore of the time. It was like people were just talked about Frankenstein like they do now. It is the only uniquely produced... It's not based off of, like, Not mythology. based off of a folklore monster that we have in the horror movie canon. Yeah, and it's kind of become... Frankenstein's monster has become almost like this mythological being. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the monsters, it's like, I think that that's the one that people are are most afraid could actually happen. Yeah, 
I mean, to your point, like Age of Enlightenment makes sense, right? Because there's just like this fear of the science behind it. And and we've talked about Frankenstein before, so I won't belabor the point. But like what I like about Young Frankenstein is that it does it does even explore like in a really silly way, um, but also somewhat seriously, this relationship between Frankenstein and his his father. work and like what science or not really his father. <laughs> But fatherhood to some degree because he's, yeah, well, because what was what is the big difference life. between this movie and the original Frankenstein tale? It's that that Gene Wilder's version of Frankenstein says that he is going to show the monster love, which is something that Victor Frankenstein did not do. Instead, he showed it abject horror and repulsion. So it is about fatherhood, and it's about the dangers of fatherhood. Now, what I love about the young Frankenstein kind of mythos is that first Frankenstein was just like, I reject my child, and here's the death and destruction that comes from the rejection of children rather than the love and the support of children. But then we also see in the other side of this where we have, you know, an abundance of love and support and a desire for uh, Gene Wilder's character to put the Frankenstein in the public spotlight. And in that way, he's really kind of a Michael Jackson figure (laughs) where, where rampant destruction is caused because of his father pushing him almost (laughs) selfishly into the spotlight. Yeah. And, and, but he does, you know, he does resolve himself and he, like he sacrifices his own life to give um, his son a higher degree of sentience and and self-awareness and you know does this like neural kind of transfer thing i don't know exactly what they don't Mm -hmm. really explain it but yeah they do this weird thing where they switch brains and penises yeah it's great abby normal (laughs) (laughs) like i had this brain all picked out and it's just immediately dropped (laughs) drag name abby normal that's pretty good actually there is this like fourth wall breaking too, like in especially in Igor's character. Just the fact that he is making fun of the Frankenstein thing, and then he just insists on being called Igor the whole time instead of Igor. By the way, they cast him so good; like everything he says and does is just hilarious. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marty Feldman. Yeah, he's great. And then <laughs> wasn't wasn't that hump on the other side? <laughs> what hump? Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt. And this is Zach. And remember... Check out all the podcasts brought to you by Redwood Sound Labs. Finally, a podcast that's dedicated to talking about your favorite sports movies. Whether you want to hear a breakdown of the plot, arguments about who's the MVP of the film, or crit and lit about it, you'll find it all on Fields of Glory. Listen to the show that will help you live a better life with your beloved pets. It handles topics like proper food, nutrition, positive reinforcement training, and more. Certified dog behavior consultant Charlotte Peltz welcomes your pet concerns and questions in the podcast, Living With Your Dog. Zach and Matt are two horror movie enthusiasts of varying experience discussing horror movies through the scope of content, context, and comedy. They'll hit on the good ones and the classics, but they're really excited for the bad ones. Listen to Watch No Evil. 
Charles is a Purple Heart recipient and cinematographer. Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together they explore the narrative, effective, and production politics of war cinema on the Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project.